Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Well, I did advertise that in this week's programme I'd be heading to Pokfalam Village for some turnip cooking. But then former Chief Executive Donald Jung was given a 20-month jail term at Stanley Prison. So please bear with me, turnips and Pokfalam will be next week. Because it made me think about how a 72-year-old man who has led the territory, has a knighthood, among other honours, would now have to adapt to life where he's incarcerated and locked in a cell. Well, businessman and former Stanley Prison inmate John Hung will understand some of what Mr Jung is going through. The corporate high flyer also did some prison time back in 2009. John Hung talked to me in 2012 about what life was like in Stanley. He published a book about his life called Master of None, how a Hong Kong high flyer overcame the devastating experience of imprisonment. He's the former chairman of Wheelock & Co and executive director of Wharf Holdings. He was a champion cricketer and was awarded a silver bauhinia for his services to Hong Kong. But first, here's my Radio 3 colleague Tom McAlinden reading an excerpt from John Hung's book where he describes how he tries to come to terms with being in prison. I glanced absent-mindedly at my cell in Stanley Prison late on the 26th of June 2009. My mind was still in shock and I couldn't accept that I'd just been convicted. Harsh reality hit me then. Very quickly, I had to resign myself to having to spend the next 16 months in confinement in that small hole. The cell was about six feet by nine feet. It had a bolted down fiberglass bed, not quite long enough for me, a tiny corner table, a plastic stool, a polished metal wall mounted mirror and a toilet with an attached wash basin, both made of stainless steel. This was to be my home for what seemed a long sentence, a grim prospect indeed. How on earth did I end up here? I slowly got accustomed to prison life. I was bundled together with foreign prisoners, better known as Other Nationals, or ONs. This group had their own dining hall, as they were on either Western or Indian diets. I found a few friends in that group. We were posted to different workshops, and I was allocated to printing and finishing, principally involved in bookbinding and sundry work. Work was simple, and it kept us active for only about four hours per day. People were friendly, and the days passed painlessly, but with little purpose. Breakfast, lunch and early dinner before 5pm were all served in the ON dining hall. There was always a break of some 90 minutes for daily exercise, football, volleyball or basketball. We could walk, jog, do tai chi or aerobics. The choice was ours. We would troop back to our cells by 6.30pm daily, which meant we were effectively locked in the cell for 12 hours every day. We had no access to internet or email and no effective use of telephones. There were only a couple of hours of television, mainly coinciding with children's programmes, and the South China Morning Post was normally available by late afternoon. I relied largely on the radio for news, mainly through the ever-reliable BBC World Service or RTHK Radio 3. I was in Stanley. That in itself was a strange thing because the crime or the offence that I was convicted, which to this day I object to, was in any case a very light crime. It's not... It's a white-collar thing. It's got nothing to do with murder and things. And I was actually quite surprised they put me into Stanley because Stanley is a what, what's called a high-security prison for, you know, I mean, it's, it's for really bad criminals, you know, hard criminals. And I was surprised they put me there instead of some other places, which is... Then I asked why, and, and I asked the superintendent, why am I in here rather than somewhere else, which is uh, because at my age, and you know, my crime is only 
uh, one of white-collar type, and I wasn't going to hurt anybody. They told me because of my high profile, they, they put me in a high-security prison to protect me so that people can't get at me. You see, there is this phobia in society that prison is really bad. You know, you go in there, you get assaulted sexually, and you get beaten up and whatnot, whatnot. When I actually was in there, I didn't find any of that to be true, and actually it didn't apply to me anyway. I found that people were actually utterly friendly, provided you are uh, polite to your fellow inmates and polite to the officers, nobody would bother you. Hong Kong prisons anyway, I, I don't know about other places. To me, that sort of threat never happened to me. How did you mentally get around that idea that, that you were going to be incarcerated for some time? Really, it never occurred to me that I would be convicted because both myself, honest to, to my, myself and to my lawyers, I considered that what they had accused me of was not something which should have led to conviction. All of us held the view, my lawyers, myself and my family and everything who knew exactly what happened, um, thought that it was a shoe-in that I would be acquitted. So when the shock came uh, of my conviction on the day when our judgment was pronounced by the judge, uh, it, it came down like a bolt of lightning to all of us, as a result of which I hadn't prepared myself for prison. So there was absolutely no planning for me to go in straight away. But the moment they convict you, they would give you maybe half an hour to talk to your lawyer briefly. Down at the bottom there is a little room there. And then you're led away, handcuffed and led away. So the head was swimming at that time, to be honest. But I think it, apart from the, the shock of, that I had to be in somewhere, locked up for, for 16 months. I hadn't a clue what it was like until I got there. Had you ever been in a prison before, like to visit anybody? Well, I, I'm a justice of the peace so for many, many years, and I've had one of the duties of a JP is to visit prisons and comment and so on. So I've done, I visited every prison in Hong Kong, every correctional institute, uh, institution in, in the past 15 years. I, so I know what it's like from a visitor's point of view. Uh, and you were led through by the superintendent. Every time you visit, they greeted you with huge politeness, and they show you this, they show you that. But we never saw what I would call the back of the house. Um, we were shown what they wanted to show us. We never saw what it was like. We never entered a cell until I was a prisoner myself. And I can assure you, that the feeling inside is very, very different from the perception that you had when you visited as a, a justice of the peace. So, you know, we saw how the, the food was served as a justice of the peace. When you go there, you, you see the kitchen, you're led through the, uh, the hospital, you've shown all those things, but they never showed us the cell itself. Uh, and so, you know, I can say that I was familiar with these prisons, from a visitor point of view, but I certainly was not familiar with the life of a prisoner. Describe your cell to me. The cell was, I would, six by nine. In a little window at the top, the door was a metal door. There's a little hole in it, hardly any ventilation. I went in in July 
the height of summer. I can genuinely tell, tell you that uh, if the, the temperature out here is 33 or 34, in that cell it would be 37, 38. And I tell you, it's so hot. And during the winter, it's so cold. <laughs> it's the extreme. I used to cover myself with the blanket and wear my, my fleece top, which they provide, to go to bed at night during the winter. And uh, during March, April, May, the walls would be dripping because those are the humid months. And literally, they would be dripping on you. I know it's not a hotel, but on the other hand, basic human rights and basic comforts should be a lot better than what they do in Hong Kong. Water was cold, uh, and you have cold showers, summer or winter. Um, and really, it's physically, for a young fellow of 20, maybe it's okay, but for a fellow of 70, a 69, I went in there. Tough. But the physical, as I'm a, I was a very good sportsman, and one time, so I'm pretty fit. I play sports until... I still do a bit of golf here and there, and I still walk a lot, and you know, I just told you I've just been to the gym. So I'm fairly fit, so I was okay. But for anyone who's a little bit weaker than me at my age, can't help them. This is a, an aspect of prison reform that we really should look at in Hong Kong because, you know, it's a good thing that, that I survived. Uh, physically, I, I, I was able to tolerate and, and survive through it. Mentally, it was very, very difficult because, first of all, when I went in there, I hadn't prepared anything, as I said, mentioned earlier. And so I spent the first five or six weeks worrying about my wife, about my children, about how she would handle everything, uh, how she would manage with, without me. Did she know where my things were, what, how to handle my affairs, my, what's left of the business? and financial, where my bank accounts were, or so on and so forth. And, you know, the communication, you had no phone. You obviously didn't have uh, internet. So you relied on um, handwritten letters, and these were censored. So, you know, whenever you sent a letter out, by the time they sent it, it would take a few days before it arrived. And when the, when the first person has replied to us, they would be looked at and opened and looked at again and they would check it, the security and all that. So instead of getting a reply in three days, it would probably take two weeks. So when you want to get anything done, uh, it took an inordinate amount of time. Then you relied on visits. The visits were 30 minutes twice a month. And so what and, and it's through glass, isn't it? It's through glass. And it's 20 minutes, and people are watching you. You can't s say too much in, in half an hour. What can you do? Particularly if your wife visited. You know, Gail visited me. She was such a good girl. She visited me, and when we, when first time she came, all she and I did was to look at each other, say, how are you, how are you, and then there's a bit of tears and, and so on and so forth. And you really couldn't get too much done. Um, except to say, well, I think you've got to do that. You've got to, you know, half an hour would be gone. And the next time, it's 30 minutes again, and it's twice a month. So it's handwritten letters. I wrote so many letters. I must have broken all records in writing letters from prison. And then you would run out of stamps because you had to earn your money and then pay for everything you want. So how did you earn your money? Well, you earn your money because, you know, you, they give you jobs, and depending on your grade... 
your, your earnings is very, very small, and it's, it's every month you, you're given a slip of paper, and you could use that to, to buy things from what I would call, I would call it a tuck shop, you know. We never handle cash, but it says that you've got so much. But if you're a new uh, uh, prisoner, you invariably start at the lowest grade, which is a, this lowest pay. So what you could get was not much at all. So what kind of work did you have to do? Initially, they put me into bookbinding, which is quite funny. Um, so I know how to rebind books now very well. And my fingers full of glue and all that stuff. But it was, work was work. I mean, it didn't require any brain work at all. And then later on, when they recognized that I had uh, a little bit of talent, uh, they moved me into printing, uh, which meant that I had to do some checking and rely on my gray cells a little bit more uh, in English and Chinese, and there was a little bit of translation and so on. And that was much more an office type of job which um, I got promoted pretty quickly, and then I earned a little bit more. I can buy a little bit more things like biscuits and sweets and, and potato crisp and cigarettes. And, but I spent a lot of money on stamps because I, spent, I sent so many letters. <laughs> That's why I wrote, because I had to keep myself busy. Instead of gossiping about absolutely nothing, I thought I'd set myself down to write a book and my concentration was so good in there that I wrote this bloody book in three and a half months. Yeah, you, were, you mentioned in the book how um, you felt that it was necessary to write this book while you were in prison because as soon as you left, yeah. well, I mean, there would be a whole host of other things interrupting your thoughts by not, that point, well, but also... Only, not only that, that I think the, if I left it uh, until I, I, I came out, the emotion that I had in there would fade away very quickly because as you re-engage yourself in society, things change, you get sidetracked, you don't think about that, it's a little bit remote. I wanted to express the emotive side of prison life as I saw things from there. And it was the right thing to do because if I write it now, I think I find it difficult. Uh, you're not focused on a single thing, which I could do there, because there was absolutely nothing else to do, <laughs> Anne-Marie. <laughs> that's, that's all it was. So day in, day out, I used to write this thing. I couldn't write fast enough to catch up with what I thought, you know. Uh, and now, when I write something... So the whole I, thing was handwritten? Absolutely. There's no other thing. No, no typewriter, no, no word processor, nothing. It's handwritten... I wrote, uh, I think, six exercise books of handwritten stuff. When I came out, I had to retype the whole lot. I couldn't give it to a secretary because nobody could read my writing. And now some Stanley Prison facts from my Radio 3 colleague, Mike Weeks. Stanley Prison itself is 80 years old and the oldest prison still in service in Hong Kong. It was opened in January 1937. According to Wikipedia, at the time of its construction, the prison was considered to be one of the finest in the British Empire. It was a modern structure built of stone, concrete and steel, and consisted of six cell blocks set behind an 18-foot wall. It was originally designed to house 1,500 prisoners, but now houses at least 200 more than that. Before 
before Hong Kong officially abolished the death penalty in 1993, Stanley Prison had been a place of execution between 1946 and 1966. Although the law did not change until 1993, the last execution that was carried out in Stanley was in November 1966. During the Japanese occupation, Stanley Prison was used to house refugees from the mainland who had fled south but been caught by the military. It was also used for torture. And execution. And for a lighter second half to the program, John Hong now recalls his childhood and early career. He was the stepson of M. C. Hong, the last comprador for the British, so the middleman for British and Chinese traders. And John began his career at a time of the Ledger and Abacus. Well, I was born in Hong Kong. I believe I was one of those rare people born at home. In those days, I don't think people sent them along to. That, you know, childbirth was not always done in hospital. My home at that time was Babington Path. It's now completely changed, but those were old houses. It was、uh, in late 1938, just before the war. So I was literally born virtually into the war, really. And at a time when, very shortly, maybe a year and a bit after my birth, my father died, and so it left my mother and my sister Wendy and myself. More or less running into the war, but my mother was the daughter of Sir Robert Coatwall, so we often went to the Coatwall household. In those days, I was told that's how it, life started. In terms of your heritage, your Eurasian, but can you describe to me the the mixed heritage that you have? Well, my my father was half Scottish and half Chinese, coming from. His father, which was already half half, exactly that mix. But my grandmother, which was my father's mother, was also Eurasian in the sense that、uh, she was from Shanghai, but her mother was Shanghainese. But her father was also、uh, a Scotsman. So you know, the, the track, as far as the the mixed blood was concerned, started with the. Generation of my grandfather. Similarly, on my mother's side, is that sort of drain also. So, you know, we've had mixed blood for three generations. Many would,、uh, in those days, particularly where there was an awful lot of bigotry、uh, in my father's generation, you could, when he looked upon it as a, a disadvantage, in, in the sense that、uh, they perceived that.、Uh, neither the Western side nor the Oriental side accept. Them as their own, or as, as in my case,、uh, I tend to look at life optimistically、uh, ever since I was very young, and decided that、um, you could turn it into a half-full situation by saying, "Well, you know, I'm going to get the best out of both. I wouldn't think twice about considering myself as Chinese when I'm with the Chinese, and、um, as、uh, British when I'm with the Brits."、Uh, And I think that I behaved just like that myself, quite frankly. You would have been six or seven years old by the end of the Second World War.、Um, can you recall anything of Hong Kong at that time?、Um, I was actually six in 1945-46, or six, six year when I came back here. Hong Kong at that time, I thought was、uh, when we returned. I thought Hong Kong was a very, very Wonderful place compared to what we, where we were, which was, uh, which was Macau.、Um, on the other hand, thinking back now, Hong Kong charm I think existed at that time. It was not overbuilt like it is today. To me, those were halcyon days. 
Hong Kong had its charm because when we first returned to Hong Kong, I believe in 1945-46, we didn't have a population any larger than about 400,000 in all of Hong Kong. Uh, the, the influx of uh, mainland uh, immigrants uh, came after 1949 when the communists took over China. We had things like going out to 11 miles for a swim at uh, Castle Peak Road or uh, going to Shekho uh, was a day's picnic. It was a, involved a long drive on winding roads. And if you had a car, which my, my stepfather had, which was uh, wonderful... Um, I really recall those days with a great deal of um, nostalgia. Um, that's the Hong Kong that I like to remember, not this, uh, in terms of uh, environment and heritage. You, you mentioned your stepfather, um, and uh, who was he and what sort of influence would he have on your life? My stepfather was really the, the half-brother of my father, um, when my father died, uh, he maintained close touch with us, and I didn't know until I was very much older, but he, he basically was actually supporting us financially, supporting mother. After the war, uh, I think uh, after a couple of years, mother married MC, and it was really quite, quite convenient, come to think of it, because he was my favorite uncle. I had a stepfather, a father I never really had, because I was too young when he died, and he... I didn't have to even change my surname because it was the same. I had a great childhood. MC to me was effectively my father. But it did cause a huge rift in your family. Well, my grandmother didn't like it because uh, MC was um, not the son of my grandmother, as my father Walter was. Uh, of course, she didn't like the idea of um, her, her stepson, as it were, uh, marrying her daughter-in-law. Uh, things that I didn't understand at that time. But come to think of it, you know, from her point of view, which is of the generation before, which is pretty old-fashioned, I can quite see her side of things, but it needn't have gone to the extent of this big rift between her and mother. Um, as far as I'm concerned, MC was my father all the way, ever since I was five, and he saw me th right through to, to secondary, tertiary, that even got me my job at Wharf, you know. The interesting thing for you as a young man, you'd studied law by that yeah. point, you were a consummate cricketer, mm -hmm. um, but uh, you, there, there was that difficulty between perhaps a bit of filial loyalty to your, um, you know, yeah. your father MC in a sense, um, but also you wanting to stride out on your own. MC was, a, as far as I was concerned, he was not just my stepfather or father, he was a great friend of mine. So we were great tennis players together, we played cricket, we did everything together as friends, you know, almost. I had deep respect for him, but then at work it's very different because he ran the old Comprador system. A Comprador uh, in the old days was basically, he, he, a Comprador was a go-between, the bridge between the Western employers and the locals because I think there was a cultural gap, there was a language gap, and nowadays is not needed, but in those days, that was traditionally, there was a Chinese man uh, bearing a Chinese name who obviously was bilingual, understand both sides, understood both sides of, the, of cultures. And he was the fellow who actually worked for those, for the Brits, 
and in mobilizing the workforce and dealing with the Chinese and and so on. He was a he was a linchpin of the business, a terribly important fellow in those days. And he more or less acted as the guarantor for the company because he was a fellow responsible for all the collection of all the receivables, all the money, and then he, what he collected he turned over. So he had to be utterly trustworthy because a huge sum of money passed through his hands. MC used to keep six or seven bank accounts, and it was immaculately kept, although the people who worked for him didn't have these computers. They worked the old ledger books. They used the abacus. And it was a way of life that, you know, pervasive during those days. And it worked for a long period. But I could see that it wasn't going to last because language barriers became... Uh, no longer a problem gradually because many of the Chinese sent their sons overseas and they came back probably cleverer than most of the Brits anyway. And their language uh, proficiency was very, very high. And so it was a question of these things being phased out. But during that time, my father, my stepfather, held a very important area, as indeed many compradors uh, were in, in these large groups of uh, British origin. My thanks to John Hong, talking there on his experience of prison life in Stanley Prison and his upbringing and career in Hong Kong. John Hong's autobiography is called Master of None, How a Hong Kong High Flyer Overcame the Devastating Experience of Imprisonment. And now, it's Hong Kong Heritage Question Time from Gulo.com. Well, last week, David, we uh, were near the University of Hong Kong. We're actually on the grounds of the university, and you were showing me an octagonal rusty tank um, that actually is a water tank that goes back or could go back 170 years. Yes, that's right. Well, that's what we think it was made, at least. And now we're trying to find out where it spent the intervening years and when did it end up at the top of Hong Kong U. So we thought we had a bit of progress because we found a map from 1889 which shows an octagonal tank over between Hospital and Bonham Roads. It was known as Hospital Tank. And I thought, oh, that's going to be uh, either the first location of our rusty tank or perhaps a close relative of it. But sadly, someone found some photos of the area, and that one seemed to have been built from stone, so a very distant relative, if at all. But the good news elsewhere, we had a, a listener, Kevin, write in, and he's a whiz with aerial photos, apparently. So the photos I ordered, they've just arrived, and I'll meet up with Kevin, and he's going to give me some tips on how to interpret the, the photos. Paul Harrison wrote to me and actually said uh, that we can't actually age the metal, but we could definitely confirm what type it is. OK. So okay, that, yes. that might be... Um, <laughs> have to go down to the laboratory. Oh, OK. I think that, yeah, that's probably a bit more advanced than I was, uh, <laughs> that I was planning on. So what's our question for this week? Let's see if we can get some responses. Yes. Well, this one's about Hong Kong's old cinemas. Uh, Peter Yee, he's living in Canada now, and he's using Gulo to compile a, uh, a list and a map of all the old cinemas that ever existed in Hong Kong. And he's hit a blank with one of them. It's called the Mei Chu Theatre. It was only around for about a year in the mid-1930s, and it was somewhere in Hong Kong. And that's as much as he knows, as much as we found out. So if any cinema experts are listening and know about the Mei Chu Theatre, perhaps they could get in touch. And how do you spell the Chu? But he spelt it M-E-I-C-H-I-U, but obviously it's a Chinese, Chinese character, so I, I, I guess the spelling's varied over the years. So this is a, a cinema or a theatre? Ah, well, a bit of both. It's called a theatre, but apparently it was a cinema, just to confuse things. 
I wonder why it only lasted a year, perhaps not enough people buying tickets. They didn't have enough blockbusters. <laughs> I don't know, mid-30s, mid yes. What's going on then? So do you have any photos or...? No, we don't have much about the Hong Hom area at all. It's funny, as you go over to Kowloon, you get less. And then as you go away from sort of Chim Sa Choi, it gets even less. So a photo would be, you know, would be the, the crowning thing to find. If anyone's got a photo of the area, even better. So this was in Hong Hom, the uh, Meichu Theatre, uh, which was also a cinema in the mid-1930s. only lasted a year, if anybody has any ideas on the Meichu Theatre. That's David looking for that. Uh, David, how can they contact you? Well, if they could drop me an email, that'd be great. David at gulo.com. So just a reminder, if you'd like to contact David, email him at david at gulo.com. Next week, I will bring you turnips, tea and a wonderful taste of togetherness, traditions and village life at Pokfalam Village. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>